Hello, and welcome back to the Outdoor Minimalist Podcast. I'm your host, Meg Carney, and I'm an outdoor and environmental writer and author of the book, Outdoor Minimalist, Wasteless Hiking, Camping, and Backpacking. Follow the link in the description to pre-order a copy of the book so you'll be the first to receive it on the release date of September 1st, 2022. The Outdoor Minimalist Podcast has a goal to give listeners actionable ways to waste less hiking, camping, backpacking, and more during every step of their process. Your impact outdoors starts long before you hit the trail and goes beyond leave no trace ethics. You'll learn how to identify sustainable outdoor brands, how to ask hard questions regarding sustainability, and begin to shift and evolve your mindset to integrate minimalism into all of your outdoor pursuits. In episode 41 of the Outdoor Minimalist podcast, we get to talk about plants. More specifically, we do a deep dive into plants within a desert ecosystem and how to recreate in a way that respects the native flora and fauna. To educate us more on this topic, I had the pleasure of hosting a dear friend of mine, Jessica Esplin. Born in the heart of Southern Utah, her family instilled a sense of wonder and respect for the outdoors while adventuring on the outskirts of Zion National Park. Working in the outdoor industry created a platform for her to travel for work and play. She soon realized another passion lay in the ecology of her home environment, the desert. Currently working and living in Flagstaff, Arizona, Jess works with the Arboretum to preserve, conserve, and showcase the Colorado Plateau's flora and fauna. Through her fieldwork, she has seen, more than ever, the need to preserve the fragile environments that we love. Whether you race cattle, off-road, climb, or camp, we all play a part in these ecosystems. From the sandstone towers of the Colorado Plateau to the great cacti of the Sonoran Desert and the wonders of the Mojave, Jessica's unique perspective can teach us about the importance of preserving these lands. All right, so thank you for joining me today, Jess. I'm excited that you had time to jump on the podcast. Before we start talking about desert plants and all that jazz, could you just give us kind of a brief overview of how you got into outdoor recreation and how that fits into your life today? Thanks for having me, Meg. It's a pleasure to be here. I grew up in southern Utah, Cedar City, St. George areas, hiking, biking, and gardening with my folks. My parents were always outside doing something, especially my father, who is an avid hunter and gardener. He really instilled in me a respect and appreciation for plants, especially desert ecology as a whole. And I think while I'm outdoors, I feel like my most authentic self. And that's why I love it so much. I soon began to explore other outdoor sports, such as rock climbing, snowboarding, backpacking. And I also love to trail run and swim. Awesome. And you've worked in and out of the outdoor industry, I mean, since I've known you, and you also have integrated that love for plants as well as outdoor activities in your current career. So can you just talk a little bit more about what you're doing for work now and how you decided to pursue that career? I originally was a ceramics major artist focused on functional pottery and I spent most of my early artist career in Taos, New Mexico, and I always enjoyed incorporating nature into my art. Leaving ceramics behind, I eventually found wilderness therapy. I led backpacking groups for Elements Traverse for about a year and a half. I think this is where I had sort of a aha moment, and I realized I already had so much knowledge of desert plants. Through educating my clients, in the San Rafael Swell in southern Utah, 
I was teaching young adults about fragile desert ecosystems, LNT ethics, low impact camping techniques, and yeah, this is where I, I started to feel the need to dive deeper into my passion for plant science. And now I currently work at the Arboretum of Flagstaff in Northern Arizona. I work in the horticulture department and also for the research and conservation department. The ARB's focus, other than being a botanical garden of sorts, is on the conservation of the native and rare plants of the Colorado Plateau. Very cool. I don't think I knew that about you with the ceramics background for some reason. So at the Arboretum, what types of projects are you working on at the moment? Other than curating landscapes, like I partially work on the grounds doing that. And I work in the greenhouses, so gardens, greenhouses, keeping plants alive. I think the coolest thing that I'm working on right now is within the research department at the ARB in the Seeds of Success program. And the Seeds of Success program is coordinated by the BLM. And it's this collaborative effort to collect seeds from native plant populations across the U.S. The seed is then used in conservation and restoration efforts. This year will be my second season working with SOS. And I've mainly been focused on the Mojave Desert region. I go out and I scout for native plant species. They give me a target species list and it's kind of like a priority list as well as far as like what is more urgently like needed. I collect data and watch the plants kind of tend areas and then I collect seeds that are needed for restoring overly grazed land and also for conserving some of the valuable desert tortoise forage and cover, which is really cool. I get really excited about the desert tortoises. Also, it contributes to saving seeds for invasive species competitors, pollinators, as well as like rare and endangered species for the national seed bank as a whole. Yeah, that's really cool. And I also am weirdly obsessed with a desert tortoise. So I'm excited for you that you get to be out there with them. Yes, they're so cool. (laughs) So when we originally connected to talk about the podcast and things that we could maybe discuss on here, I was really interested in just your vast knowledge of desert ecosystems, as well as the plants and animals that live in them. So I think a good starting point is just to talk about desert ecosystems in general and what qualifies as a desert or how that differs from other types of ecosystems that people may be more used to seeing or being in. Yeah, absolutely. I think starting off, uh, maybe not a lot of people know this, but deserts cover about a fifth of the Earth's surface, and they're extreme environments. And most people, when they think about deserts, they think of them being as like really hot and really dry. But some deserts are actually really cold. <laughs> a desert biome is classified by an area of land that receives no more than 10 to 15 inches of precipitation a year. And this lack of water makes desert landscapes vulnerable and creates arid conditions. 
temperatures vary greatly between day and night, which increases evaporation rates. And that's not always apparent in the desert, you know, where you're already in an, uh, an established desert, you may see dry lake beds. That's a huge characteristic of a desert in general and the effects of climate change as well. Deserts usually have coarse and fragile textured soils that take a really long time to recover when disturbed. I know that a lot of people have heard of crypto soil and cryptobiotic crusts and they're real. They're created by living organisms. Algae, cyanobacteria, and fungi they're all within the soil and they release like a material that binds the soil together. As a result, you get this like hardened surface layer that helps keep the wind from taking all the dirt away, basically. And other than that, plants living in this soil are drought resistant. There's a lot of drought resistant vegetation and rare plants with specialized biodiversity, which means that the plant and animal species that live in these areas rely on each other to survive and they've evolved special adaptations that help them in those extreme environments. That is really interesting. I did not know that so much of the earth was covered by desert land. And also, I've always known about cryptobiotic soil, but I never understood the purpose. So I'm really excited that you shared that. Yeah, I think that a lot of people are like, a little jaded <laughs> by the talk of crypto soil and like if it's actually real and like if it actually takes that long to recover and it is like it's alive <laughs> which is really cool and really crazy i've seen some crypto soil that is huge it looks like a castle has been built is that type of soil only present in certain types of deserts? Like, would we only see that in the Mojave Desert, or do we see that in other places as well? I think it's everywhere. You know, some places are more saturated than others, of course. I have witnessed a lot of it in the Utah area growing up in those, like, red sands. And I think that maybe that's because it's just easier to see in that color of sand. It's there. You may not notice that it's there, but it's there. For people that aren't exactly sure what you're talking about when you're talking about crypto soil, can you explain kind of some identifying features? Because you really, if you're hiking through those areas, you really don't want to disturb that type of soil. Yes, absolutely. I'm always really like analyzing the soil because I don't want to disturb that and I do believe that there are organisms living in there and so like staying on trails that are already established is super important which I'm sure we'll talk about more later but the first characteristic I see is like mounded it will look almost like powdered sugar you know it's not the color of powdered sugar but has been like sprinkled on top so you have like little holes it almost looks aerated and raised and then when you get into more established communities of cryptobiotic soil, you see mosses and lichen that live on the top of these mounds, which has taken a lot longer to be created. And whenever I've seen it, it's like a darker color, but I saw it a lot also in Utah. So it was contrasted against that red soil, like you're saying. So is it usually darker or is it different colors? Yeah, it can be darker. It's definitely dar darker like towards the top, the very like surface 
level that you're looking at, but a lot of it underneath will be the same color of the soil that you're walking in. Okay, so you kind of, you do have to pay really careful attention then of like the texture of the soil as well, not just the different colors and things like that. And I think it's just something that people aren't used to looking for. It's like just having a little more awareness of it, thinking like, oh, this exists. I should look out for that rather than just like tromping through the desert, you know, getting to your destination. Yeah, I feel like the first step with a lot of this stuff is just knowing that those types of things exist. Absolutely. Supercharge your dog's mealtime with Neobytes Functional Dog Food Toppers. Neobytes unlocks the unique power of cricket protein to promote firm poops, a thick and shiny coat, and everyday vitality for your pup. With a powder format, these toppers can easily be mixed into existing foods to make mealtime more exciting. Cricket, a hypoallergenic and humane protein, is not only a better option for your pup, but it's better for the planet too. Producing virtually no greenhouse gases and using fractions of the resources used by traditional proteins. Check out Neobytes products on Amazon and at eatneobytes.com. Use the discount code CRICKET15 for 15% off your next order. And then use the code Outdoor Minimalist for 10% off every order after that. So I am not entirely sure if this is even a relevant question, but are there different types of deserts? Yes, there are. There are actually four types of deserts. You have subtropical deserts, which are hot and dry year-round, which are like the deserts we're talking about more, the Mojave and the Sonoran, and also the Chihuahuan Desert. And then you have cold winter deserts that have a long, dry summer and low rainfall in the winter, which is more like the Great Basin and the Colorado Plateau, the Red Desert. And then you have coastal deserts, which have cool winters, warm summers, and they occur alongside coasts. Coastal deserts also have like a lot of wind, easterly wind patterns that kind of like prevent moisture from moving to the land. And then you have polar deserts, which are found in the Arctic and the Antarctic regions. They are like warmer deserts. They also get very little precipitation, but they are cold all the time. Okay, so I'm assuming that we at least have the first three types of deserts in the United States. Yes, we do. And also something to keep in mind is that deserts can be combinations of each other. Uh, For example, last winter I was in Baja, California, Mexico, which is a semi-arid coastal desert. When I found that out, I was like, wait, (laughs) really? This messes everything up for me. (laughs) Okay, so I feel like we've already kind of established there's a lot of fragility in deserts in general, no matter the type of desert, and they're a very easily impacted ecosystem. So before we start talking about more LNT type recreation in those areas, I think it could be beneficial to hear more about the historical and current loss of biodiversity within those deserts in the United States. First off, what is biodiversity loss, right? That describes a decline in the number and variety of plant and animal species, also 
genetic variability and the biological communities in a given area. So we're talking about the Mojave and the Sonoran. When we lose this variety of life, we, we start to see a breakdown in the ecosystem where a decline in function of the specific habitat begins to like be apparent. And actually, the Mojave Desert is one of the best protected ecoregions in the United States. It has a lot more reserves than the Sonoran, although I feel that the riparian areas definitely need more protection in like every desert in the US. But I think it's like roughly half of the Mojave Desert habitats remain intact and the other half has been heavily altered by human activity. Okay, before you go any further, can you also explain what a riparian area is in case people aren't sure? There are like areas along streams, rivers, water holes. 75% of all species in Arizona especially depend on riparian habitats for survival. We're in a dry region and water is a precious resource. That's where everyone is flocking, right? Even humans. Like, the more demand for water that humans have, the more riparian areas are decreased and altered. And that, like, that really affects the creatures that live along our waterways, the plants. So do you think a lot of the biodiversity loss, I mean, a lot of it probably comes from a multitude of reasons, but do you think a lot of it is because of that demand for water and the way that we've kind of, like, manipulated water in the deserts? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the that's a huge point of the degradation of these habitats. I also think it might be, it's uh, like a whole nother discussion as far as water rights go, and it is a very political issue happening right now in the southern states, especially. So when did the Mojave and Sonoran Desert start to see more of that biodiversity loss? I think that climate change has really been affecting the deserts, I want to say like 50 years. Yeah, they are very affected by urbanization. When you think about the Mojave, you think about urbanization from Los Angeles and Las Vegas and the increasing demand for landfill space, agriculture development along the Colorado River, which is a riparian zone. Grazing and off-road vehicles are a huge part of the loss of biodiversity in these deserts. Okay, (laughs) I'm not sure exactly how to incorporate this question, but I also want to talk a little bit about how deserts form. So does that biodiversity loss that is occurring and like continues to occur, can that change the type of desert that's happening? Can it increase the desertification or how are other areas being impacted by those things? Deserts are formed by a weathering process. Large variations in temperature between day and night put strains on the earth and cause evaporation and low humidity. And this weathering can destroy plant life, which in turn can destroy animal life. Also, without vegetation, any soil or organic matter is swept away by wind, often leaving behind, you know, barren rocks and sand. And also on the other front, when it rains in the desert, it downpours and it can result in flash floods, which also can affect plant life. So like that's the process. And also I would say 
those climatic variations and human activities are the two main causes of desertification. So removal of the natural vegetation cover, like by taking too much fuel wood, agriculture activities in these vulnerable ecosystems, they strain the area beyond their capacity. My experience in the Mojave is seeing that overgrazing is a major cause of desertification. And I think it's worldwide. I don't think it's just in the Mojave. There's a lot of things that contribute to desertification. And I think that it's the human impact that makes it worse. Because the weather is already doing what it's doing. We're already at this point. But we can lessen our impact and, you know, help cryptosoils to grow protect the plants that are holding the soil in place so that everything doesn't just like blow away. (laughs) So other ecosystems can also become deserts because of these processes that you're talking about too. Yeah, it's not just the weather. Disturbed soils are always more vulnerable. So like you think about urbanization and like the overuse of groundwater, deforestation, even like tillage practices that make soils more vulnerable to wind can turn a forested area or a lush area into something completely different. Yeah, that is definitely, (laughs) I feel like we could talk a lot about desertification. That's a very hard word for me to say, but we probably don't want to go in too deep. I know. I, I'm just like, okay, <laughs> I need to talk about something positive now. <laughs> yeah, we'll switch gears. It'll be good. Thank you for all of that information. One of the big things, I know that outdoor recreation doesn't necessarily have the number one impact on deserts or biodiversity loss, but it does have an impact. So when people are recreating in a desert landscape, whether it is within O. HV area, like ATV area, I don't remember what they're called, or just like hiking in those areas. How can people best minimize their impacts or follow specific LNT guidelines for deserts? The biggest thing is just to use existing roads and trails in camping areas. Deserts can seem so inviting because they're so vast and open and the plants look like they're dead, but they're not. And you have those special soils Yeah, I think that that's like the biggest thing. Also, doing some research before you go out to an area just on what is a designated recreation area. Paying attention to sensitive plants and animals is hard because there are a lot of BLM lands that motorized travel has much more like rain than say like in a national forest. But yeah, paying attention to those fragile riparian zones because those are so important for the plants and animals also thinking about your sport like what are you doing are you hiking are you climbing are you biking you know some climbing areas have seasonal closures for raptor nesting and like some parks don't allow dogs because they're trying to preserve this animal species the bighorn sheep i think it really like all comes down to basic LNT principles. 
actually reading about them and learning them and following the guidelines that are outlined is really important. And I think when I've been to some of those areas, like new areas, if I'm traveling or something, and it's a hiking place I haven't been, they'll often have those trailhead entrances that will even show pictures and stuff of plants that and animals that might be endangered. Yeah, totally. Especially in the Mojave, there are plants that are on critical lists. And you can also do research. They have like a federal plant list of endangered and threatened plant species that you can like see online through the Environmental Online Conservation System. Okay, I'll share a link to that in the episode notes. So if people want to look at it, they can. And since we're talking about plants, could you just name maybe a couple that people would maybe be more familiar with or be able to recognize easily that would be more fragile than others or even ones that are currently in critical or endangered conditions? I don't think we really talked about endemic and like what that means, but so both the Sonoran and the Mojave Deserts contain endemic plant species. They're species that are just found in one region and nowhere else in the world. So these plants are really special. This also increases the urgency of conservation, I think, because once these species disappear, we may never see them again. The Holmgren milkfetch is actually right now a critically endangered perennial herb that can only be found like in a tiny section of the northern Mojave Desert, which is like between Utah and Arizona. It lives super close to the ground and its leaves grow flat like upon the desert floor. And in the spring, its flowers bloom, producing these like really striking pink pea flowers so it's super easy to identify and few and far between there's also the century milk vetch which is a similar plant may have a different color flower the golden paintbrush is something that's endangered there are many species of manzanita that are threatened right now especially in the california area and some of the native plants i work with that are on the federal endangered species list include the arizona agave the arizona cliff rose kearney's blue star and a bunch of different pincushion cacti, which are so easily overlooked because they're very small and they just kind of like peek out of the rocks a little bit and they just get stepped on because they look like rocks, but they're really cool and they have beautiful flowers in the spring. Yeah, also the Arizona hedgehog cactus is one that is on the endangered list. Does that one actually look like a hedgehog? Yeah, so, (laughs) I don't know. I don't think they really look like a hedgehog. I've been out looking for them. I've found a lot of them, and they're really cool, but they also look like they're seriously struggling right now. I think they're really affected by off-road travel and like being covered in dust is not helping their their photosynthesis. But maybe like really small hedgehogs that are like all clustered together. (laughs) Okay, okay, I could picture it maybe. They're cute though. They have like really cool colored spines like that would be much different than a regular hair, uh, a hedgehog cactus. So 
We talked like really, really briefly about some of the LNT guidelines and stuff in the desert. And going back to the plants that Jess mentioned, I'll do my best to include links to maybe some of those in the show notes so you can check them out. But then I'll also share pictures of them on social media. So if you just want to see pictures of them being beautiful in their habitat, you can go there too. If we want to kind of transition from LNT type things, what like an individual is doing, I think it would also maybe be beneficial to talk about how people can get more involved in larger scale conservation efforts like what you are doing. Yeah, I think that probably most of the people who are listening to this podcast are pretty educated on LNT, and I feel like I've already touched a lot of points. One thing I want to hit on LNT before we move into restoration is that in the desert, other than like staying on trails and roads that are established, packing out all of your waste, which oftentimes involves pooping in a bag. (laughs) I know this could be challenging and take time to get used to, but human wastes take a very long time to decompose in the desert especially your toilet paper. So that's something to think about, as well as if you do have to camp out of designated areas, just using durable surfaces like rock, sand, gravel. These surfaces are highly durable and can tolerate repeated travel, like slick rock areas and dry washes if no rain's in the forecast. As far as restoration goes, researching a specific area you want to be in or you're going to be in actually knowing how fragile the area is that you're visiting and knowing what type of land you're on is it a national park state park blm is it state trust land where motorized vehicles have poor free reign checking national park and blm websites and making sure you know the regulations of the area these rules are in place to help preserve our natural environment and There may be specific ethics, depending on the activity you're involved in. I want to encourage everyone to never be shy to go into a ranger station or a local outdoor shop and ask questions. These people are living and thriving in these areas, and they know a lot. Restoration efforts, I feel like, are few and far between. I haven't found many resources for people who want to be involved other than reaching out to your local sport chapter or conservation corps. I do have some names of some conservation partners such as the Wilderness Society, the Native Plant Society, the Sierra Club, and the California Desert Protection League. Also a really cool website that has to do more with my involvement and the Seeds of Success program is the Plant Conservation Alliance, which is just like plantconservationalliance.org. But I want to encourage people to look into developing an SOS partnership in your area. They have a website and training every year. Anyone can do it within their specific climate range. Um, I think it really encourages community involvement as well. And I've had a lot of people who are super stoked to volunteer with Seeds of Success and come out to the Mojave with me and collect seeds. Yeah, that's a lot of really great insight and resources. And I'll make sure that I share all those resources in the episode notes. But I do also agree that expanding that type of restoration would be really awesome and localizing it. I really feel like localizing as many of these efforts as possible is really important. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that 
the best way to learn about an area that you're in is to ask the people that live in it and thrive in it. They care about it. They have done the research for you and just reaching out to those people can be very powerful. Awesome. Well, you already shared a lot of different resources for people just a minute ago, but did you have any other specific resources you would encourage people to look at in terms of responsible recreation or desert restoration? I think I just really want to stress the awareness of like what type of land you're on. Finding out that information before you go is really important. It could be not encouraged for humans to be there because it is so fragile. It also like may not be <laughs> that fun for you because it is like a really harsh environment and I think that that's an important step in planning whatever type of recreation you're doing. Yes, I agree. Well, thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. I feel like I learned a lot and I hope everyone else did too. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks, Meg. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, let me know. Leave a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can still find me on Instagram at outdoor.minimalist.book. Follow there for daily updates, other educational resources, and to help build an outdoor community with a shared goal to create a better outdoor space as we recreate.